I turn now to our scripture lesson for this evening's sermon as we continue studying the Ten Commandments. We come this evening to the Seventh Commandment, which, like last week, is going to be a short reading. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Not quite as short as last week's, but still fairly short. Here is God's word as he spoke to Israel and as Moses faithfully and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recorded. And so we know we have the very word of God here as we read Exodus 20 verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. We pray that the Lord would bless it's reading that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in his sight, in Jesus' name. Well, each time you might have noticed as I've begun uh, one of these sermons on the Ten Commandments, this is number seven now, I've talked about the, the three uses of God's moral law, uh, which the Ten Commandments, of course, summarize that moral law, and I've uh, presented them in different orders, and I'll give a different order this evening too, uh, just for the point of offering uh, different emphasis. Uh, one use of God's law, the one that we usually say is the third use, though some will put it first, uh, is to teach the reprobate to fear judgment. So there are people who may never themselves be saved, but it will restrain evil in the world, Uh, keeps the world and societies from being as bad as they could be. And so this is part of God's common grace for us, that he uh, uses various means in the world to restrain evil and thus makes uh, his people more secure in this world. And uh, he gives stability to societies, again, keeping the world from being quite as bad as it could be. Because as bad as we think things are, they could be much worse. Another use of the law is to show the saved, the regenerate, what pleases God uh, when he has saved us. So this is sort of the other extreme that's usually what we would say is the third use of the law, or rather the second use of the law that I usually speak of. So the other one was the third, So, uh, but I named it first tonight, so that, that restrains even those who may never be saved. But then also for those who are saved, the law teaches us how to serve God. And so it's very helpful for us to consider the Ten Commandments, which are the summary of that moral law, because it helps us understand what honors God. And each of these commandments, of course, has both a negative and a positive aspect. So tonight we read, you shall not commit adultery. And so there is a Uh, restraint on us. The negative aspect is a certain set of things that we are not supposed to do, and we'll get into what those are this evening. Then there's this positive aspect that also tells us honor marriage. That would be the, the, the general positive application of the seventh commandment. And so we we delve into God's moral law as God's people, and this shows us we can use it to glorify him thank him for the salvation that we have to become more Christ-like. And thus, secondarily from that, we can gain more assurance ourselves 
that we really are being changed by the Holy Spirit and therefore must really be saved. And so we demonstrate that we are indeed God's people by learning to obey this law, which we cannot do in any meaningful sense apart from being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, another use of the law, third use here, usually the one that I mentioned first, is to serve as a mirror, to show us how dirty we actually are in God's sight, how much we need forgiveness, how much we need a Savior. So this is the the use that drives us to Christ. It teaches God's elect how holy God is and how sinful we are and so how desperately we must need a Savior because there is no way that we can make up for our own sins. Indeed, that law teaches us that if we try to keep it by our own strength, we will fail. And to put it, as I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, to put it as Isaiah puts it, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We, we're trying to clothe ourselves perfectly for God's presence. And when we're doing this, trying to do this in our own strength, it's as putting on filthy rags to enter the presence of the king. And that's because, as many of the ancient church fathers, and Augustine of Hippo stands out in my mind with this, and, uh, reminded us, everything we do, if we are not already forgiven in Christ, everything we do, even when we seek to keep this law, when we're doing this commandment, or any of these other commandments, we're bringing some sin along with it. And so everything that we think and say and do is tainted by our sinfulness, And so, if we refuse to obey God's law, God is righteously angry with us for refusing to obey His law. If we transgress His law, He's righteously angry with us for doing something that He has told us not to do. But then when we do something that God has commanded, and we bring sin along with us, there's still something about our doing that that makes God righteously angry with us. And so, we are hopeless unless we have a Savior who has paid the penalty for those sins, and then when we do the things that please God, He's not counting the sin against us that we bring along with it, and He's counting that deed as an an actual righteous deed. But as we look at this law, and we see, therefore, that it exposes how actually uh, far we have fallen, how fallen we are, perhaps I should say, If we examine ourselves according to the standard of God's moral law, we see how actually unclean and wretched we really are in God's sight. As we look at at His perfect holy standard and we see how far we fall short of that. And so this is why it's often compared to a mirror. You know, I use my mirror every morning to help me get presentable to the world. If I didn't, you would see a rather different looking person in the pulpit right now. I used it this evening before coming here. Uh, in terms of getting ready for church earlier this morning, you know, maybe I would have massive cuts from trying to use my razor without a mirror. I have big spots I missed shaving because I wasn't using a mirror. My hair would be unkempt. And I go a little more casually in the evening, but in the morning I wear a tie, as you know, and maybe my tie wouldn't be 
tied correctly or wouldn't be on straight. Maybe right now my buttons would be crooked and I wouldn't know it. But what if you had stayed overnight at our home? In the morning you saw me trying to clean myself up and getting ready in the morning. And what am I doing? I'm scrubbing my face with a piece of mirror instead of with a soap. Or trying to brush my teeth with a jagged shard of that glass from the mirror. Well, you would, you would think something was seriously wrong with me, right? You'd be saying, stop, what's wrong with you? You're insane. You're, you're going you're to hurt yourself. You're certainly not going to get yourself clean and presentable by using the mirror to try to wash your face or to try to shave. I suppose I could shave with a jagged piece of mirror if I really tried, but, but you get my point. If we try to clean ourselves up by using the moral law, it's like trying to use the mirror as the actual instrument to get yourself clean. It's the wrong use. We probably hurt ourselves. That's not the purpose of a mirror, and that's not the purpose of God's moral law. Rather, as the mirror teaches me to get the soap and the washcloth, I, I, I look at the mirror and I say, oh wow, you really need to clean up. I need to get my razor. I need to shave. The toothbrush, the toothpaste, those kinds of things. The law teaches me to run to the only thing that can clean me up, and that is Jesus. It teaches me to flee to Jesus Christ, who alone can make me clean in God's sight. After that, it becomes a tool I can use to reflect God's glory in my life. So we can continue the mirror analogy. Now you turn it around and you reflect God's glory to those around you. Well, keeping that in mind, we come now to the seventh commandment, which simply says, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, in the first sense of the term, Adultery means a violation of the marriage covenant whereby a husband or wife has relations with someone other than her husband or his wife. But the Hebrew root, it's na'af, is the Hebrew root of the word, carries with it a sense of disruption. I found this interesting years ago when I was researching this. Uh, It's an element in the specific word we read about this morning in, from the Greek, fornication. Uh, the, the Hebrew equivalent of that word is, uh, is vina, uh, which, if it's examined etymologically, uh, literally means also adultery. So, so you're not to commit adultery, and then there's this also adultery, this other kind of adultery. It's, it's not the same thing as a spouse being unfaithful, but it also dishonors marriage. So while the commandment holds as particularly terrible the breaking of an actual existing marriage covenant, and by the way, the covenant is made between one man and one woman, but also between the couple and God. So even if the couple were to agree that it's okay to break this marriage covenant, and the so-called, we've heard about the so-called open marriage, well, God does not agree to that. And so it's still adultery. The seventh commandment applies to any violation or disruption of marriage as God created it. And so as we see application of this commandment opened up in Scripture, we see that it's not just about marital infidelity, but it's about anything 
that dishonors marriage as God created it. So that means we violate the commandment any time we would dishonor the gift of marriage between one man and one woman. So we can note several things then. Number one, God created one man and one woman and gave them to each other in marriage. He didn't create, you know, the old saying, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, He didn't create two men. He didn't create two women. He didn't create one man and six women. He didn't create a whole group of men and a whole group of women and make them all be married to each other in some kind of group marriage. It was one man and one woman. And some people will say, well, that's an Old Testament teaching, though. Jesus never condemned anything apart from that, any other definition of marriage. Well, let's see what Jesus implies here. Actually, quite clearly states. If we look at Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. So here what has happened is uh, the Pharisees have come to Jesus. Verse 3 says the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And that uh, any reason there might be part of the trap that they're trying to back him into. But he, of course, goes back to what God has actually said and to the creation principle of marriage. So starting at verse 4 of Matthew 19, Matthew says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I just think, first of all, what's he say there? That's, that's a, a real jab at the Pharisees. They're asking him this question, and he says, well, haven't you read the Bible? <laughs> of course they have. But he's really really uh, shaking them awake here. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's a good lesson for our culture today, isn't it? And touches on some of the things that we were talking about this morning. That's... We're made male and female. The human race is binary. So people who try to say that they're not binary or that there are people who aren't binary or that you can switch back and forth or whatever are denying reality. And God has made us male and female. So he says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus literally says two shall become one. So again, that limits us to two people. So marriage can't be beyond that. That's the creation principle. And it's a man leaving his father and mother to be joined to his wife. And the the Greek term there, just as it's equivalent in Hebrew there, is simply his woman. So it's a man, it's a woman. That's the definition of marriage that Jesus himself gives. He says then, so then, they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's saying, uh, in principle, God does not intend for marriages to be broken up when this question was asked, is it okay to divorce? And then he goes on to explain uh, Moses, God through Moses, really, uh, conceded to divorce under certain circumstances uh, only because of the hardness of the human heart. It says in verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So when when marriage is not legitimately broken up, a remarriage of the couple is to anyone else is adultery. And of course the one thing that Jesus mentions here that's allowable is for uh, adultery having taken place. We also uh, note that, uh, as we'll get into in the weeks coming, Lord willing, in our study of 1 Corinthians, that Paul uh, specifically mentions that if an unbeliever is married to a believer, usually the situation would have been you have two unbelievers married to each other and then one becomes a believer, and uh, if the unbelieving spouse doesn't leave, well, there's no excuse to break up that marriage. But if the unbelieving spouse leaves because you're a believer, now you can act as if basically you've been widowed and you can move on and remarry. And those are the only two uh, scriptural, uh, scripturally permitted situations where divorce is acceptable. And we'll, we'll get into more detail of that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come in 1 Corinthians 7. But certainly as we look here, how does God define marriage? How does Jesus define marriage? It's between a male and a female. A man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. Any attempt to redefine that is a violation of the seventh commandment because it is failing to honor what God has made in marriage. It's failing to honor marriage as it really is defined. Which means, of course, societally speaking, the U.S. Supreme Court and our whole society now is guilty of adultery. We're guilty of violating the Seventh Commandment because we have taken it upon ourselves, so to speak, to redefine what marriage is and to say that it's something other than what God says it actually is. And He created it. He gets to define it. Even Old Testament saints who had multiple wives... We're actually violating this principle, although the forbidding of polygamy is, isn't so explicit until it's expressed explicitly in the New Testament. We do certainly see that the creation principle was violated, and nowhere will you find anyone in the Old Testament being told by God that it is good that he has multiple wives. Never does God say, Jacob, good job for having more than one wife. David, I'm very pleased with you. He certainly doesn't command it. When God overlooks a sin, that's grace. It doesn't mean the sin is not a sin. Second thing we note is obviously marital infidelity violates the seventh commandment. That's its basic meaning. No, no question about that. But a third thing that we find in Scripture is, as we saw, the also adultery word in Hebrew and what it covers what commonly is called shacking up, cohabiting, out of wedlock, that disrupts and dishonors the institution of marriage, essentially by declaring it to be unnecessary. And four, of course, any activity that's reserved, sexual activity that's supposed to be between a man and his wife, any such activity between two or more persons not married to each other, disrupts 
marriage. So remember, the root of that word means disruption. So those are things that disrupts marriage by not holding sacred the institution in which God ordained those things to take place. It would be akin, we might think, to in the Old Testament, God has ordained a particular place for sacrifice to take place and the people decided, no, we're going to sacrifice at the high places. And it's not a coincidence that when they did that, in particular when they did that to worship other gods, God compared it to adultery. Now the societal guilt of redefinition of marriage, not to mention no-fault divorce, where we break up marriages, we disrupt marriages for less than biblical reasons. Those things notwithstanding, as individuals, uh, all of us here might be saying, well, individually, I'm free and clear on this one. I haven't been unfaithful. I've never disrupted marriage in any other way. I've certainly not given over to, uh, to this redefinition of what marriage is. But then we have to think about Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he tells us the standard is more than just your outward actions. As I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And keep in mind, ladies, that when moral commands in Scripture are directed to men, there is always a reciprocal principle implied for women. So uh, Jesus is also saying to women, every woman who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in her heart. To lust for anyone to whom I am not married is to commit adultery in my heart. Because again, it dishonors marriage for which such thoughts and intentions are supposed to be reserved. That's what God made marriage for. It's not the only thing he made it for, but it is the appropriate venue, if you will, for those things. The appropriate environment for those things is marriage. Well, of course, any human being who lives past puberty is almost certainly someone who's done this. An adulterer at heart. So here, this just shows us, as we look at a, at a command like this, it sounds so simple at first. Well, of course, you shall not commit adultery and I won't do it. But then when we start to dig into it and think of Jesus' words about it, and we see, oh, look at how I'm guilty of this too. That just shows us how broken each one of us actually is. How fallen we are. How high God's holy standard is and how low we are compared to that. And so that tells us how badly we need a Savior. Every unchaste thought, word, or action is in, a, in essence adultery. As with the previous six commandments, though, an honest examination of ourselves in light of the seventh commandment should teach us not to despair, not to say, oh, how filthy I am and wretched, God has to destroy me. But rather what it should do is teach us to flee to Jesus Christ and to rejoice that we have such a Savior as that who took all of those things upon himself, who became sin, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It teaches us to depend totally on his righteousness because think again of that Isaiah statement that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We just see how filthy those rags are 
They're tainted by all of these things. So it tells us to flee to Christ. Depend totally on His righteousness to save us. For we stand guilty before a holy God. But if we've trusted in Jesus alone, we have received forgiveness. And we're not forgiven so that we might be free to just live as we please. Well, my adulterous thoughts are forgiven, so I'll just give in to them. But it's so that we might live in a way that glorifies God. The seventh commandment teaches us positively to glorify God by preserving our own and our neighbor's purity in these matters. So far as it depends on us, whether in heart, in speech, or in behavior. That means we should avoid all things that would excite lust in ourselves or others. This isn't politically correct to point out, but of course... Uh, I don't think this is a a problem that I've seen in this congregation at all, but uh, this is going up online, and so who knows who might hear this. Uh, Christian women, your Christian brothers are men. That's pretty obvious. Uh, Men are particularly visual when it comes to what attracts us. This is one reason Scripture enjoins godly women to be modest in their dress. Again, I've never noticed this being a problem here, so don't think I'm pointing any fingers at anybody here tonight. Now, that said, a Christian woman is not responsible for whether or not a man looks at you and how he looks at you. Now, we, we have, uh, have to practice self-control. And certainly, you cannot practice somebody else's self-control. And so nobody is saying that that's what a woman should do. But of course, it is helpful if Christian women don't give the men around them any, anything extra to draw their attention to these things. And of course, while women are a bit more complex in what attracts them, perhaps, the reverse is certainly true for men. You know, I don't care how, how much you've been working out, Christian men, uh, Nobody needs to see your abs on Facebook <laughs> or Instagram or whatever the next fad of, of social media is. You know, save those things for your wife. We need, so far as we can, to avoid anything that excites lust in ourselves or anyone else. Don't put other people in the pathway of things that are impure. Be careful, of course, in our day and age, something that Christians in past generations never had to deal with was the internet. We have to be very careful of what we expose ourselves to online. And in every way possible, we need to honor the institution of marriage. And here's something you don't hear much about, to uphold the blessed virtue of virginity before marriage. That's not something that the world thinks is normal. There are movies about people who are too old to be virgins and this kind of thing. We should be honoring those who wait until they are married. And if someone listening to this has not waited, but you're not married, it's not too late to practice purity, to repent and trust in the Lord and to be pure. 
And remember that the Lord Jesus purifies all who are in Him. So a major thing that we can do as we seek to serve Christ is to do what Hebrews 13 verse 4 says. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so we see that there's a command for us there. In fact, it comes in the context of the first verse of chapter 13 of Hebrews. says, let brotherly love continue. And so it's in this context of how do we love one another? One is, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them. Talking particularly of people who are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. People like Paul. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And then marriage is honorable among all. Or let the marriage bed be held in honor. And so this is part of how we show brotherly love to one another. We honor the purity of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, which is the great application, the positive application of this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and blessedness of the nature that you have given us and for the gift of marriage in which context this aspect of our nature is to be exercised for the bonding of the couple as well as for the procreation of children. We pray that you would work through us and in us to preserve chastity through fidelity in marriage between one man and his one wife and purity and virginity and singleness. Keep our thoughts words and actions pure by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, for we know that it is only by His power that we can overcome sin. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would be working within us in the name, by the authority of Jesus Christ, as we pray in that name this evening. Amen.